the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls so that we can answer Bible questions, whatever's on your heart or mind. We'll do the very best that we can to answer those questions. Here are the phone numbers, 340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also send them in via our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you're driving in your car, I remind you always the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now button and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. There has been so much going on. But first and foremost, let me just ask you to continue to pray. Um, We asked you to pray all last week uh, for um, Raina Wilson, her husband Carl. Uh, She is undergoing a very virulent form of cancer. It's attacking her uh, viciously, and um, uh, the news is not good. Uh, So the only thing that will help, I think, is the prayers of God's people. So uh, we'll keep you informed as uh, it's appropriate. But please keep uh, Raina and Carl Wilson in your prayers. Raina is the one who is afflicted. And uh, Carl, because he is her husband in one flesh, uh, it's also uh, uh, just an exceptionally difficult time. Uh, And I would consider it a personal favor if everybody would add them to their prayer lists daily. Uh, Because it's Monday night, tonight we have our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies here at 7 o'clock. As always, you can watch the ladies' portion of it at calvaryessay.com at 7 o'clock. But come and join It'd be a great evening, a great evening for the family, especially if you have kids that are junior high and high school age and husbands and wives, you can come worship together. Then you separate into separate places. Uh, Crystal Snellenberg will be teaching the ladies tonight, Uh, Pastor Ken teaching the men, Um, Pastor Nelly, the high school age youth, and Chris Sanchez will be teaching the junior high school age kids. So all of that going on here at Calvary Chapel. Hope you had a great week in church. Yesterday, of course, was Communion Sunday here at Calvary Chapel, and we always love that. Um, We're getting close to finishing uh, in the Book of Romans. We're not quite there yet, but we're we're getting close. Um, Good day yesterday. People got saved. Hope that was happening at your church as well, and I pray that you were blessed by being a blessing to others in the body. Let's go to some questions that have been sent. One of the things, and I've forgotten this. I got a, I got a caller? No. Okay. Uh, I, I forgot um, that we had a question about something called the thorn that was sent in early last week, and I just it just absolutely slipped my mind. So I apologize. Somebody wanted me to know or wanted to ask what I thought about it. 
you know, I, I've checked it out online. It just appears as though it's sort of a passion play, um, a, a summary of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. It appears to be done very well professionally, but it, but it, it is it is a very professional um, uh, performance. Uh, and uh, like all performances, I'm sure it's going to be um, edifying. And I, I just don't see any problem with it. It's not something that travels around to churches. But um, I think they, um, um, they're they advertising it well. It looks like it's well done. So that's really all I'm saying. Not having seen it, I did get to view the trailer. But not having seen it, I just don't think there's much else that, that I could contribute to that. So sorry for it taking so long. But that's uh, what it was. Here is a question from Rich from our mobile app. He says, do you think there's a benefit to social media? Do the potential benefits outweigh the downside? Rich, I, I honestly don't. Now, again, I'm not a Luddite here, so I don't want anybody to accuse me of being so anti-progress that he just doesn't understand the value of social media. Uh, I just haven't seen any. And and like everybody, I've got a whole bunch of people in my church who are very active on social media. Um, and not one of them is reported a benefit. Now, obviously, on Facebook, you can keep in touch with family and friends, and, and that's relatively harmless. But it's the other things that happen on Facebook, the arguments, the discussions, the, the, the fights that Christians get dragged into. It's a forum for sharing opinions, uh, and I just don't see any value whatsoever. So uh, my answer to that, Rich, is no. I, I think Facebook and other forms of social media are time thieves, uh, I think that's sort of the unintended consequence of of uh, our social media time. Um, if if we would spend as much time in the Bible as we do on Facebook or other forms of social media, we would be way, way, way ahead of the game. Um, I, I just don't understand, and I guess I never will. Maybe, uh, I mean, the world's changing. I, I understand that we have to deal with the world that we live in, not the world the way we want it to be. But I just don't see the value of sharing my opinions. Uh, people will say, but Pastor Ron, you can share the gospel. Um, God doesn't need Facebook or other forms of social media to share the gospel. That's what church does. That's what we do when we're out sharing with people face to face. That's what we do as we walk through our busy days, whether it's at work or at home, in our neighborhood, shopping, whatever it is. We can be his billboard. And, and you know, telling people about Jesus has a lot greater impact. Hearing comes by faith and faith by the word of God. I'm sorry, I said hearing comes by faith. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing, it, it, Mondays are tough, so. Uh, and hearing by the word of God. Um, so, you know, I, I'm sure somebody's going to have stories about how somebody got saved on Facebook. Great. But, our personal walks would be improved immensely, Rich, if we would spend more time in his word, more time in prayer, more time ministering to others, being kind, demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit. And I just don't see the value of removing ourselves. Let me, let me just go off for just one second. I'm sorry. In advance, I apologize. You know, I'm one of those guys that when I call a business, I want to talk to a human being. I don't want to talk to an automated phone system. I want to get to a human, somebody that I can communicate with. I think communicating the gospel requires us to do that. And pushing buttons and talking to uh, automated voices, uh, communicating via uh, the written word over, over a, an electronic forum just doesn't have the same kind of value. So, again, I'm sure I'm missing something, but I'd much rather spend my time with Jesus doing the work that God's called me to do. And frankly, I just don't see the value. One of the things that is really difficult for me is how electronics have made us such a rude culture. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. We don't even talk to one another if we have phones. We're so connected, tethered to our phones that we don't 
take the time to stop and ask somebody how he or she is doing. Instead of calling somebody with a message, we post it or we tweet it. And we're living in a world where person-to-person contact, face-to-face, heart-to-heart, is diminishing so quickly. Paul and I, we go to the same restaurant pretty much a couple times a week for breakfast. And we're always communicating how families will come in, sit around the table. I'm talking all ages of families. And they never actually look up and talk to one another. They'll stop long enough to take a bite of food, but they won't talk to each other. They immediately get on their devices. And especially when there's young children at the table and you see mom and a dad and young kids not interconnecting personally, I think a lot of damage is being done. So, Rich, I, I speak sort of as a neophyte because I'm not involved in um, social media. Um, so I'm sure there are more people that disagree with me than who will agree with me. Hope that helps, Rich. Thanks for the question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is another mobile app question from Caleb. What does the woman seated on a scarlet beast represent in Revelation chapter seventeen? I think you mean Revelation chapter twelve, Caleb. Um, just to be sure, that's the woman on the beast. So um, I'm going to assume that it's just a typo. Uh, One of the things that we need to understand as we get into Revelation chapter 12, the pace of the book really quickens. Um, Things are speeding up because we're anticipating the arrival of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming in chapter 19. Satan's time is short. He's aware that his defeat is imminent, but he's really, really angry. And he continues to hold on to the hope that somehow he's going to be able to delay his inevitable destruction. So Revelation chapter 12 begins, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. Now, one of the things about the book of Revelation, I think this is one of the reasons people are frightened of it. Um, We see the symbolism and we think, I can never figure out the symbolism. But the book of Revelation doesn't make us guess regarding what's going on. Because this is a sign, the description that follows is clearly symbolic. It's not literal. John is seeing a vision. He's not going to see a real woman or a real dragon or a real child. He's going to see these things as symbols representing other things. Now, in this chapter, we're told what the first two symbols represent. Verse 9 identifies the dragon clearly as Satan, the devil. The child in our story also is clearly identified. Verse 5 makes it clear that the child is Jesus because there's no other who will ever rule with the nations with an iron scepter. Now, because we know what those two symbols are, Caleb, the identity of the woman is also easy to determine. The rest of verse 1 says, a woman clothed with the sun, again, this very symbolic, poetic language, with a moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars under her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Now, Caleb, the woman is described in celestial images, but we've seen all of those images before. Every symbol in Revelation is explained to us somewhere else in Scripture, every single one. Now, there are some, primarily Roman Catholics, who say that the woman has to be Mary. She gave birth to Jesus, so it must be her. But that's not what we're told in this chapter. This is a sign. This isn't to be taken literal. That means the woman that's giving birth to, to, to the child here symbolizes something far bigger than Mary. Um, for those of you with any kind of a background in Christian science, Mary Baker Eddie, who Eddie, who was the founder of Christian science, uh, actually claimed that she was the woman of Revelation chapter 12. Some Christians with really messed up eschatology uh, claim that the woman of Revelation 12 is the church. None of that can be true. Jesus gave birth to the church, not the other way around. So the woman in this chapter is the nation of Israel from whom the Christ, our Jesus, would come. 
Now, we know that because in the Old Testament, and this is where the symbolism is so rich and wonderfully consistent. In the Old Testament, Israel is often compared to a woman, specifically uh, even a woman in the pangs of labor. Uh, But we have more proof in Genesis 37 when Joseph's dream is explained. Let me read that very quickly, and then we'll, we'll go on to another question. Uh, chapter 37, verse 9 says, Then he, Joseph, had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, uh, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. There's a symbolism from Revelation 12. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had where your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? You see, the sun is identified as Jacob, Joseph's father. The moon identified as his mother, Rachel. That makes the identity of this woman as the nation of Israel certain. So, Caleb, I hope that helps answer your question very, very much. Oh, it's all Revelation 17? Okay, well, I'll have to look at Revelation 17. I am so sorry. I'll get back to that when I can get some time. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Lawrence. My question is about Philippians chapter 1. What does Paul mean by saying to live is Christ, but to die is gain? Um, You know, Paul was always wrestling. I remember one of the things, Lawrence, Paul had been to heaven. And because he'd been to heaven, um, he knew what awaited him. And so when he says to die is gain, what he's saying is, look, to die and be with Jesus is better by far. But you remember, as he was writing that, he sort of had a, a word from the Holy Spirit right in the middle, and he goes, basically, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to die, I'm going to stay here and serve the Lord. So he says, but to live is Christ. So in other words, he's going to fulfill the commission that God gave him the entire time that he's here alive, and until that time he's going to keep serving the Lord, and then finally one day, one day, when he is with Jesus, he'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So this is just sort of a, which one of these great things do I want? Do I want to die and be with Christ, which is better by far, or to stay here and serve the Lord? And the answer is basically, Lord, thy will be done. And in Paul's case, Lawrence, we know that the answer to that question was, uh, Jesus said, I'm not done with you yet. I'm not done with you yet. So I hope that helps. 340-9585, Anonymous wants to know, is free will and God's sovereignty a contradiction? Um, No, it's only a contradiction because we don't understand it. Um, here's the thing that I think we really have to focus on, Anonymous. God's sovereignty doesn't mean God causes things to happen. God's sovereignty means he knows what's going to happen. It means he's in control of what's going to happen. And even more gloriously, it means that whatever happens is going to work out to accomplish the will of God. That's really important. Romans 8.28 says, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So God is in control without causing behavior. So we have free will to choose every day who we're going to serve. If we use our free will to honor God, then, then we are the beneficiaries of God's sovereign power. If we use our free will to rebel against God, Well, then, Anonymous, we're going to cause a lot of pain. We're going to be in a lot of pain. So it's really important that we understand God's sovereignty isn't seen as God is in the heavens and he's just sort of pulling puppet strings. God's sovereign power means that no matter what we do, his will is going to be done. I think we use then our free will to decide whether or not we're going to be able to be the ones God uses to accomplish His will. So you get up tomorrow morning, you have to choose. Am I going to serve me or am I going to serve God? Am I going to sin or am I going to be walking with Jesus? And either way, God's sovereignty is going to prevail. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to prevail over you. We can miss out on things. 
but God's not the cause of all things. When we fail, it's our fault. It's never God's fault. One other thought on this, Anonymous, and maybe this is more in line of what you were thinking. Uh, the fact that God is sovereign over all things and knows what's going to happen. People sometimes say, well, then it doesn't matter what choice I make. If God knows what I'm going to do already, what's the point? Well, again, God doesn't cause the things that come from the choice you made. But he knows what they're going to be. And he knows because he lives outside of time and space. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows what I'm going to do, what I'm going to say, even knows what I'm going to pray before it comes out. So free will and sovereignty are not in opposition to one another. They actually work well hand in hand with one another. And one of the things I hope that I communicate adequately here is that God is hoping that we use our free will to be a part of his plan instead of using our free will to resist his plan for our lives. His will is still going to get done. You know, Anonymous, uh, I, I often think about our almost 23 years here at Calvary Chapel San Antonio. Why did God send me and Paul? I'm a white guy. She's a black woman to a primarily Hispanic city. 60% of our population is Hispanic. Why did he send us here? Was it because somebody else was here and they failed or somebody else didn't say yes when God called them? We'd never been to Texas. We didn't know anybody here. In fact, we never even wanted to come to Texas. But God sort of sovereignly reached down and picked us up. Now, if we wouldn't have agreed with God to come, he would have sent someone else in our place and we would have been the ones who missed out. And I'd like everybody in the audience to think of their free will as an opportunity to never have to miss out on anything that God has for you, but instead an opportunity to join in what God is doing. So don't be afraid of God's sovereignty and certainly use your free will. Exercise it to honor the Lord and you'll be pleased that you did. Paul and I, you know, we can't imagine what life would be like. Very quickly, you know, I forgot to mention the top of the program today. This is a uh, our Women's Retreat Week. So we're running out of time. I would ask everybody to be praying uh, all week for the ladies. They'll be going up Thursday afternoon, uh, returning on Saturday at noon. Um, if you are interested in going, there's still room to squeeze you. We're going to have a pretty large crowd out there. But uh, you will truly be blessed. March 8th through 10th. I think the first thing starts at 7 o'clock, out there at 7 o'clock uh, at Camp Buckner in Burnett, Texas. Dad Burnett. Uh, and uh, it's a really, really nice place. It'd be a really wonderful weekend, so we would invite you to do that. Here is a question from Charles. He wants to know, uh, Pastor Ron, what do you think of the New Living Translation? Charles, I'm liking it more and more and more. Um, I don't really know why I didn't uh, like it so much at the beginning. Um, but uh, the more I've dug into it uh, and sort of examined it against the 1984 version of the NIV, I like it a lot. Um, I see that it's growing in popularity. Um, it uses language that uh, most often makes the point. Uh, I will say this, my only limitation is I haven't spent a lot of time in the NLT, in the Old Testament, so I don't have much of a basis for comparison there. But what I've seen so far in the New Testament, I like it a lot. And probably if uh, if we couldn't find any more 1984 versions of the NIV, I once said I'll change to the ESV, but I don't think so anymore. I think I actually would change to the New Living Translation. I know some other pastor friends who are using it in their church. And they uh, agree that it's a really, really good translation, and uh, uh, I think it's good. It's better than the Living Bible, although not too dissimilar. Uh, it's better because it is a translation, a thought-for-thought -thought translation, as opposed to the Living Bible, which is uh, more of a paraphrase. And I'm more comfortable with the word-for-word -word of the thought-for-thought -thought translation. So I, I hope that helps. 
We've got two minutes. Uh, I'm going to take the go back to the Revelation chapter 17 question um, um, on the other side of the break. Uh, I want to get. I'm going to take a minute and adjust my eyes and look at the at the passage of scripture. Uh, so I'll do that for you, uh, Caleb. And um, uh, I apologize again. Um, here's one from Donna. Donna says, is organ donation okay with God? Donna, organ o- donation is fine with God. In fact, it's very Christ-like. Um, you know, to help somebody live. Um, what happens to these old bodies when we die really doesn't matter. But if we can, in the spirit of helping people, in the spirit of loving our brothers and sisters, if we can donate an organ that will help somebody else live, uh, I just can't imagine that Jesus could be at all upset with that. So, no, I think it's a very sacrificial thing. Um, uh, I think it's a thing that Jesus would do in in the day and age of medical science that we have. So I wouldn't worry about it at all. Organ donation is a good thing, so do it. We've got 30 minutes left on our Monday program. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-5757. You're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the program. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Caleb, I apologize so deeply. I get so many questions about Revelation chapter 12, The Woman on the Beast. And that's what I took time to explain. You didn't care about that. You're asking about chapter 17. It's a completely different passage of Scripture. I was able to to turn uh, in the Bible to uh, Rev 17 while while uh, we were at the break. Uh, this this is another obviously very symbolic um, passage of Scripture. These are signs and wonders, uh, but this one is completely different. Um, this one is we we might say Caleb that this is about how much God hates religion. Because in this particular case, um, the the uh, woman that we see here, she's actually not just a woman, she's a harlot. The Greek word is porne. We get our English word pornography from it. Um, um, some translations say that she's a whore. And what she represents is false religion. And of course, we know that during the Great Tribulation, religion is going to rule and reign again. The, the, the Antichrist, the false prophet, uh, will deceive the peoples all over the world. There will be a, a, a revival of religion. But remember, religion is never something that God approves of. We use the word, well, I'm a religious person. If you love Jesus Christ, you're not. You have a relationship with your almighty God, who's also your friend and gives you the keys to heaven that we can cry out, Abba, Father, in our prayers. So from the very beginning, from the very beginning, all God wanted was fellowship with humans, and humans have tried to remove um, the, 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 the intimacy from the relationship. We try to replace it by doing religious things. Now, the first four verses are what you're talking about, and I'll read them and, and give some quick comments on it. It says, one of the seven angels, now that would be this one of the, the seventh angel from the study prior to this in chapter 16, and this is the angel who uh, declared that it is done, Babylon has been remembered. Um, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, these are the bowls of judgment, came and said to me, come, I'll show you the punishment, if you have a King James, it's judgment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. Now, as we look at this and this this symbolism, um, we need to know that uh, we open this chapter of 17th out of sequence. Uh, Both chapter 17 and 18 are not necessarily chronological in order. This is sort of an insert. Uh, The fall of Babylon occurred in Revelation chapter 14 and Revelation chapter 16. Uh, In this chapter and in chapter 18, 
uh, Caleb, are the details regarding uh, the fall of Babylon. Now, the first in these first verses is the, the ecclesiastical or religious Babylon. We call it spiritual Babylon. We're told in this passage that she sits on many waters. That means she's controlling many waters. The waters are identified for us in verse 15 of this chapter as nations, peoples. Literally, it's the multitudes on the earth. So this is a picture of false religion seducing people, not only in the end time, but as has been the case throughout the history of the world. Um, So the seventh angel invites John to watch the punishment of this false religious system. Now, later in the book, we're going to see um, economic Babylon, Babylon being a symbol of all that which opposes God. It will be destroyed. Uh, But this is the religious Babylon, the spiritual Babylon. So um, the Greek word again is is porne, um, and God is going to punish this prostitute, uh, and that's what's in view here. Um, it says in the next verse, with her the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Um, that's never change with religion. We go through the motions and God hates it. It says, Then the angel, this verse 3, carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast um, that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. So what we've got here, the beast we know from chapter 13, we know who that is. Um, The beast is the Antichrist. Um, we're, we're shown here that the real force behind the rise of, the, of, of not only the Antichrist but the false religious system is the devil. And that explains why the blasphemous names and the seven heads and ten horns were there. So it's a very graphic picture of what religion has evolved into. It says in verse 4, The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She had... Uh, She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. Now, this is, from a worldly perspective, very flattering, very attractive, being clothed with luxury things. But from God's perspective, uh, he sees things as they really are. And here she's filthy and filled with abominable things. So, uh, Mystery Babylon, the great mother of the prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth, it just indicates that this is the false religious system. So, Caleb, I apologize again for for um, misunderstanding your question, and uh, I hope that helps. Here is an anonymous question, tough one. Uh, a friend who is a Christian is having a baby, even though she's not married. Everyone is acting like the baby is going to be such a blessing, but what about the sin? It doesn't seem like there's any repentance. You know, anonymous, we deal with this uh, a lot. We have a young woman in our church who uh, loves Jesus and, and with all of her heart. From the moment she got saved, God has been using her. Uh, and she had a moment where she sinned. And, of course, she got pregnant. Um, she is really the only woman. Now, she was, I think, 19 at the time. She was the only woman that I remember in our church who stepped up and took responsibility and called sin what it is. Yes, the baby was going to be a blessing. And by the way, that baby now is one of the most beautiful baby boys in the whole world. But when people would come to her and and, and, and say, oh, you're pregnant, and she'd say, yes, I said, no, but the baby's going to be such a blessing. They would try to plan baby showers and all kinds of things for her. And, and she would stop them, and she would say, no, what I did was sin. And God is going to make this work out well, but only because I acknowledge it as sin. So I think there's two dynamics here. We always need to be happy when a baby's born. It's new life, an opportunity to add to the family of God. But we also have to be realistic about the conditions upon which that baby was conceived. And if the mother and the father are going to be in the place where they can be used by God, well, then they've got to acknowledge their sin and they've got to repent. Then God can turn it into good. You see, there's, I mean, babies are wonderful, 
But a baby who's born to people in sin who are unrepentant is not a blessing. What we need to do is repent and let God wash away those sins and then be in the place where God can bless him. And I think we get carried away with the thought of a baby. We get carried away with all of the emotional things that come alongside having a baby. This one young woman was such a hero to me because she would correct everybody. No, it's okay. It's okay. The baby's going to be so cute. No, you don't understand. I sinned against God. I knew it was wrong. And as a result, her and her husband are so full of Jesus. And this baby absolutely knows he's loved. Uh, And they're walking with Jesus. And the baby has turned into a blessing. That's the power of God. But there always needs to be repentance. So if this is a friend who's a Christian, sit down and talk to her. If she's, well, I know, but the baby's going to be, yeah, but make sure she has the opportunity to get right with God. Tell her that you'll pray with her. You can talk her through this. I've actually had the young woman that I spoke of a moment ago minister to other young women who get pregnant out of marriage, outside of marriage, I should say. And God has given her fruitful ministry in the process. So yeah, babies are great and we're happy to have them, but we want that child to be born to repentant parents who are walking with Jesus with all of their heart. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from Devin. How can I make the devil stop attacking me with bad thoughts? Devin, you can't. Now, don't be discouraged. You have to remember, that's the devil's job. His job is to tempt you. His job is to destroy you. He is in rebellion against God, so it's not like God's going to put a wall of protection around you and the devil can't get through. He has access to your mind. He's going to plant thoughts. He's going to make you feel uh, like you're the most unspiritual person in the world. That's his job. So understand that. What you can do is take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. In other words... Recognize that the devil is the source of those bad thoughts. And then basically ignore them. You don't talk to the devil. You don't shout at the devil. You just know that he's the source of those thoughts. And then you surround yourself in the word of God. You understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you. You remember that you don't have to give in to those thoughts because... Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So we understand and accept bad thoughts for what they are. Lies from an enemy. And instead we're going to dwell on the promises of God. You know, yesterday here at uh, Calvary Chapel, Devin, we finished the teaching section of Romans. Chapter 15, verse 13 is sort of where the teaching ends and the rest is just sort of exhortation and greetings and salutations uh, kind of thing. But Um, when we think about the wonderful promises God has made the enemy has no answer for those things now he's not going to give up but God is with you so just ignore him talk to Jesus if every time a bad thought comes in your mind you start reading your Bible not just open it and start reading it but wherever you left off start reading again or if every time you have a bad thought that, that comes from the enemy and you uh, pray, the devil's going to get discouraged. He doesn't want you reading the word. He doesn't want you praying. So he'll try something else. But don't worry about the bad thoughts. You're not responsible for those thoughts. I've had the same question regarding dreams. What about bad dreams? Well, um, you know, bad dreams are a, a function of our subconscious We have no control over those things. In the same way, when the devil is the one bringing bad thoughts to you, Devin, you have no control over that. The only thing you can control is what you do 
with those bad thoughts, how much time you spend dwelling on them, and then make the decision how quickly you can avoid them by turning to Jesus. So I hope that helps. Thank you. I appreciate the question. Here's an anonymous question from our email inbox. Um, He or she says, I am struggling with fellowshipping with some people in my church. I find it real hard to talk to them as they get under my skin. Oh, boy. Sometimes while at church, I'll go the opposite direction to where I intended to go. Just to steer clear of these people. I know I shouldn't be doing this, but what can I do? I'm really struggling with this. Could you give me some direction? Thank you, Pastor Ron. In advance, you truly bless us with your radio ministry. Selfishly, I pray that God continues to use you in this way. You're such an encourager like your wife, Paula. Well, Anonymous, thank you very, very much. Let me very The very first thing that, that I want to do is recommend the message that I did yesterday. You can get it at calvaryessay.com because it dealt with this very issue. You walk into church, you're ready to hear from the Lord, and the first thing you see is somebody who irritates you to death. And the problem is we turn away from them instead of turning to them. And the difference here, Anonymous, is the difference that Paul described as being the difference between the weak Christian and the strong Christian, or we might say the mature or the immature Christian. Now, here's something that you have to understand. God is going to put difficult people in your life. And he does that. Hold your breath here. He does that because you need them. One of the examples that I gave in the message yesterday was, you know, um, it, it's, it, just, it never ceases to amaze. You come to church and there's somebody right there or you see them coming and, and as you described in this email, you go the other direction. Well, every time I tried to do that, Anonymous, I would run into somebody who's even more irritating. And it was sort of like God's joke with me. And, and it was his way of teaching me to grow up. He was saying, stop running away from people and run to them. Those are the people that need you, and they're the people that you need. Well, Lord, why do I need people that irritate me? Because you need to learn to love. Because you need to grow. And grow up. So what you do is your purpose in your heart. Say, Jesus, you're with me. This isn't about me. So bring those irritating people on so I can learn to love them the way you love them. And never forget Anonymous. He loves them as much as he loves you. So when they get under your skin, you go and love them. Do you have enough faith to do that? At the end of the study yesterday, Paul said that the result of that was joy and peace and hope. We can look at every one of those difficult people as an opportunity to minister the love of God to them. And in the process, deny ourselves. And Jesus said to be his disciple, you've got to pick up your cross every day. You've got to deny yourself and say, use me. Now, here's the thing. You get up, you go to church. Most of us are praying, Lord, use me today. Speak to my heart through your word and give me an opportunity to use the gifts that you've given me to minister to others. Well, what if the ministry God has for you is to some of these difficult people? Jesus didn't turn away difficult people. In fact, Jesus called 12 of them his disciples. Have I been with you so long? How many times do you think Jesus said, Oy vey. So just purpose in your heart that you're going to do what Jesus did. The other thing I told the church yesterday to do, Anonymous, is this one. I said, remember how irritating you were and the way God accepted you. If you remember that, then it'll give you a completely different perspective on the difficult people in your life. So if you know you shouldn't be doing it, change. Just change. Make the decision. Lord, I need your help. I'm going to do it because you love them and I'm going to do it for you. And then Jesus will say to you, I'll do it with you. And to do it for him and to do it with him, ooh, those are really good things. So I hope that helps. But listen to the message. I I think it's worth, um, worth, worth your time.
340-9585 for your live calls or questions. Here's a question from Kenneth. Uh, he says, I know Jesus is coming twice to this earth, but you believe he's coming three times, including the rapture. There's no Bible passage that says he's coming three times. You're absolutely right, Kenneth. There is none. He is coming twice. He's already been here once. So the next time he comes, you can read about it in Revelation chapter 19. He comes as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Those are the two comings, the first and second and final advent of our Lord. Now, the rapture isn't Jesus coming to earth. We're told that we will be caught up in the air to be with him where he is. Jesus hinted at that in John chapter 14. We have... 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. We've also got 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that describes this this snatching away. He's not coming to earth. He's going to call us to be with him where he is. So that's not a coming a third time. That's when he's just sounding the, the, the trumpet call of God. It's a, a symbolic way of saying, I'm going to call and you're going to answer. And in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be transformed and we'll be with him where he is. We'll be there for seven years. So the Bible doesn't say the rapture is a trip to the earth at all. The Bible says that we're going to be the ones who are doing the traveling. You know, I just came home from uh, a weekend. I was uh, speaking at a conference in Houston and then had to get on the airplane and fly back here. And, um, um, you know, it takes a lot out of me. I'm just a, a 24-hour, that quick turnaround. Uh, this is a trip I'm really looking forward to. I won't be tired because I'm going to get a whole new body. I'm going to be like him. Not only am I going to be with him, but I'm going to be like him. And believe me, no more getting tired. So, Kenneth, um, maybe you misunderstood. I didn't say he was coming three times. I don't believe he's coming three times. He's coming just twice, and only one of those is yet to come. But before that happens, seven years before, in fact, he's coming for us, and he's going to cause us to be caught up in the air to be with him where he is. hope that makes sense to you. Here is a question from Les. He wants to know, uh, Pastor Ron, how long did it take Noah to build the ark? Um, Les, we know it took him 120 years. We know that from Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. Now, a couple of things that we have to understand about this. The first is that God saw all of the evil on the earth. He saw that every inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time. It's a very important descriptive words. And basically he said, look, I'm not going to put up with men forever. And um, he gave him 120 years. It took Noah 120 years to build the ark. For 120 years, Noah preached. For 120 years, Noah built. For 120 years, he and his family shared. And he was rejected. But how patient is God that he would give 120 years? years. And by the end of the 120 years, the people's hearts were so hard that even when it would begin to rain, they wouldn't join Noah on the ark. Remember seven days before the flood, Noah and his family were shut in. By God, he closed the ark until the floods began. The people's hearts remained hard. So 120 years. Our God truly, less is patient. Here is a question from Greg. He says, can you explain how Samson's hair provided the strength he had? It really wasn't Samson's hair. The hair was a symbol. This is really important. Uh, you know, one of the things about Samson is, is, is he wasn't this big muscle-bound dude that is pictured in our children's Bible storybooks. He was a very average, red-headed man who God endowed with exceptional strength. 
They had to keep asking him, what is the source of your strength? If he had muscle upon muscle upon muscle, if he was bigger than everybody, they wouldn't have been asking him that question. But it was in his commitment. Now, uh, uh, Samson was a Nazarite. Uh, he, he was born with this Nazarite vow. John the Baptist uh, was the other. Um, and that he wasn't to cut his hair was just that the hair was a symbol of his consecration to God. Now, in the same way, Greg, when, when we're committed to serving God, when we're submitted to God, we have this great strength available, not physical strength like Samson. But remember, I say this often at church. I say it often on this radio program. What happens to Israel in the physical realm happens to us in the spiritual realm. That's why Paul said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Well, Samson was weak until God's Spirit came upon him, and then he did these miraculous things. So it was his separation to God, even in spite of the fact that Samson was not uh, a good guy. Samson was not a faithful man. But during the time of the judges, he was God's chosen man, the deliverer for Israel. Now, the time of the judges was a horrible time in Israel's history, perhaps the worst in the history of Israel's history time when men did what seemed right to them. Well, even Samson did what seemed right to him. It wasn't until his dying breath that his strength came back. So it wasn't the hair. When Delilah cut the hair, or had the hair cut, it was nothing more than God saying, you've been walking away from me for a long time, now I've walked away from you. And the Spirit departed from him and Samson knew it not. So, Greg, I hope that answers your question. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Uh, phones were really quiet, obviously, but we'd love to have your calls. We'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. You're listening to The Word, to Stand Up For Life. I really appreciate you tuning in. May God bless you and keep you seated tomorrow. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.